I decided to cheat a little bit um, because I can. We are going to look at a topic that directly ties into our conference that begins tomorrow night. And so um, it's important to me, one, to equip you as a church. And, um, and so I'm going to take advantage of this Sunday to do that. We're going to be considering the church in a changing world. And as I've wrestled through this all week, there are so many directions that you could go with this. And, um, and I went all of them at first, but I, I obviously can't cover all of that. And so I finally narrowed it down into what I think I needed to do to prepare for tomorrow to help you if you're coming. Um, I do want to encourage you to come. Uh, we've got a lot of, uh, the word is out. I think, I think we could have a good turnout uh, as far as other pastors and, and people who are interested in coming. So I pray you come if you can. We, we will have childcare, I think, ages or grades one through five is what we advertise. So we'll have finger foods as well. So it's, it's going to be more than carrots and celery, but not quite a full meal. Just so you know, you can plan accordingly. How many of you guys have seen the movie Castaway? Okay, almost everybody. Good. Good movie. Um, there's a lot about that movie I actually really like because it highlights some of the things um, that are natural to man's experience. One of them, obviously you know, is the need for relationship. And obviously he finds the, the volleyball, Wilson, and that's his companion that gives him hope. Well, the movie was on a couple of weeks back at my parents' house. We went to visit them. And as I was sitting there watching the very end of it, this scene... I don't know if you can see that scene. It's at, the, it's at the end of the movie. You remember his struggle during the movie to get past the barrier reef. He couldn't make it. And finally, he builds a raft, gets that little sail, and, and it gets him up past the barrier reef. He and Wilson are out to open sea, hoping to be saved. Well, it moves to the scene where he's asleep on the raft and Wilson falls off and begins to float away. And it's devastating to him. I mean, you feel the empathy in that scene. It was, it was heartbreaking, and it's a volleyball, you know? Well, this, this scene up here on the screen immediately follows after Wilson floats away and he's not able to find him. And as I, as I watched the scene, I thought, that is the perfect illustration for what postmodernism is. Here, Tom Hanks is sitting on the edge of the raft, as you can see. All hope has been lost. His paddle which is meant to steer, direct him, keep him moving, he, he almost sacrificially pushes it out to sea to float away. And, he, and it's symbolically stating he's giving himself up to the fate of death. There's, all hope is lost. There's no more hope. He sacrificially pushes that oar out to sea. It's a very touching scene. And as I watched it, I thought, like I said, that is the perfect illustration of what postmodernism has done to our culture. As you know, we're talking about postmodernism tomorrow, and we're specifically going to look at how it's affected law, how it's affected morality, how it's affected authority. And then we're going to look at what it is. That's how it's going to start. But this was such a sad scene because postmodernism has literally left an entire society in one of two extremes, if you've bought into it. You either are completely in despair, like this, or you, you do whatever you want, because there's nothing to say you can't. And so you have one of those two extremes. That's the, 
That's the life courses that postmodernism literally offers you. Utter despair or complete heathenism. There's no justification for anything else. So I thought, I really want, as far as my ability um, to help you understand postmodernism, do a conference on it. So we're going to do that. Today, I want to I want to do something different to help prep you for tomorrow if you're able to come. We're going to do a brief survey of why we as a church need to engage people with this idea. Postmodernism is not just a you know a philosophical term that we like throwing around. It's real and it's changed our culture dramatically. So we're going to consider how it's done that. And then I want to speak briefly this morning on three biblical imperatives and responses that we should have as a church. And this is very high-flying general imperatives for us. Okay, One, because we're commanded to. Two, because the church needs it. Three, because the lost need it. I've, I've seen something, and I've been guilty of this, so I'm confessing to you. I've seen something of an error in the church's response, not just to a cultural issue like postmodernism, but in general, this is what the church does. Something like postmodernism will come up and it will challenge the Christian worldview. And so what we do as pastors and what we do as lay people is we, we read it, we analyze it, we find its faults, and we show how it's wrong. And then we close the book, we say, oh, that's wrong, we're in error, they're in error. Move on like it's no big deal. We did our duty, we showed how it's wrong, and it's no big deal. The problem with that is, is we need to do that kind of work. We need to be exposing these things. Problem is, all the while, it's ravaging the people we're supposed to be meeting. And they don't have those answers. It's absolutely devastating to a culture. And so as I studied this week, the, the main thing, I said this to the worship team last night, the main point for me that I kept being drawn to was, was the empathy that God had for us sinners. Obviously, Him sitting on His throne in heaven could look at a sinful world and critique and say everything that's wrong with it. But He didn't stop there. He came. And He labored and saved us. And that's what so often lacks in the church, is the empathy. So, we're going to consider that last, alright? So briefly, here's some areas in our society that has been changed or challenged by postmodernism. And if you don't know what postmodernism is exactly, I'm going to do the first session tomorrow on it. And it will be very helpful. I'm telling you, if you go, if you're there for the first session tomorrow night, you'll, you'll leave there being able to go back and watch TV, uh, see what's going on in politics, all these things. You'll, you'll be able to identify it. So I hope you're able to go. But here's briefly some areas that have been changed or challenged. We're all familiar with the political correctness movement going on, right? Can't say anything because it's not politically correct. Might offend. Well, that's a direct result of postmodern thought. The claim that our courts are biased and never provide a fair trial. You hear that pretty often in criminal cases, right? No one really gets a fair shot. Here's one, the dissuasion by experts, quote-unquote, of disciplining a child by spanking. Jill just had a run-in with this this week. She was called vicious because we spank our children. And that, this woman claimed, 
has no place in Christianity, and she's glad that we're not part of her church. Extreme tolerance, except for views that contradict, of any and every view or practice. Now that's summarized pretty easy. Extreme tolerance of any and every view. But stop and think about the implications of that. If any and every view of life is actually allowed, what does that do to a society? It's utter chaos. Utter chaos. If you're not able to make discretionary judgments saying, that's not right, that's wrong, this is... It will absolutely destroy people, and it is destroying the people. The last one, they're declining or abandoning the teaching of literature, history, logic, philosophy within our school systems. John Dewey is the the framer of our modern-day school systems. He himself was was, uh, a professing liberal, forerunner to postmodern thought. He was also a Marxist who thought we simply need to train kids to fill a role to go crank out work for the whole. So they abandon teaching history. Not that we don't teach history, but uh, we don't focus on that. We don't teach logic, that's for sure. Here's some more. Rewriting history to leave out major historical events. This is already beginning to happen, for instance, with the Holocaust. Identity politics and the social justice movement. We'll talk about that in my last session on postmodernism and law. The belief that male and female are socially created categories. That's a huge one in our society today, right? That's a result of postmodern thought. And it's especially, they argue, a category to enslave women to men. So feminist ideology has its roots big time in postmodern theory. And by the way, a lot of these, you might be surprised how you've been influenced by. Big time. Hostility toward the sciences and the use of reason or rational argument. I get this every day at home. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Jill's going to kill me for saying that when she listens to this. Abandoning the idea that justice should be served in cases of criminality in favor of education or treatment to reform violators. Has this affected anybody directly? Yes. And I'll give you some shocking examples of this tomorrow. Or actually, it'll be Tuesday night. Shocking examples. Last, they're abandoning parental roles in favor of letting children make their own decisions. I want to read something to you in view of this that I just read yesterday. So I want to comment on that last one, abandoning parental roles in favor of letting children make their own decisions. Because this truly has infiltrated the church. This is everywhere in the church. No longer are parents seen as an authority that children are to obey. Parental approaches now is, well, let the child decide. What do you want to do? What do you want to eat kind of approach? That's postmodernism. Postmodernism, one of the topics, like I said, my brother's speaking on is authority. It completely rejects any authority, whether it's ecclesiastical, church, governmental, or parental. What truly needs to be upheld is the autonomy of the individual. That's why we give children choices. That's what's most important. 
according to postmodernists. Here's, here's a few examples I've read in the past. So it could be seen, this, this last point could be seen in as small of a point as, as trying to let children decide what they will eat for dinner instead of eating what mom or dad has cooked. It's pretty common, but that's the same route. It could be another extreme represented by a couple in England that I read about several years ago who had a child and wouldn't reveal the sex of the child, the gender of the child, even to the child itself. They wouldn't give the child blue or pink clothes. Everything was neutral. And here's why they said they were doing that. They wanted the child to decide for themselves what gender they wanted to be when they were old enough. It's in England. But here's what I read just yesterday. A mother called 911 because her son refused to get out of bed and go to school. Why? because he'd stayed up till three in the morning playing Fortnite video game. So she calls 911. She doesn't have any authority in the home to say, get up. She's got to call the police. The police officer comes and tells the child to get up and go to school. He refuses and fights back. Finally, he gives in to the officer, goes to school. But here's what the mom says. She wonders why she's got to resort to 911. Here's what she said. Shouldn't I give my son the freedom to make mistakes. It's not like he's going to be driving while intoxicated. It's just a video game. I think good parenting means letting kids decide. Scripture says foolishness and folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Compare that to that statement. So it's not only cultural ideas that have been challenged and changed, such as the way we dress, the way we talk, those do change, and it's not necessarily wrong, okay? It's kind of fun to look at various generations and how we dress, those kind of issues. That's not really what postmodernism is about. Postmodernism is changing foundational things, such as truth, nature. And what I mean by nature is that human beings don't actually have a nature to them. Right and wrong. All of these have been argued away. Classically, the pursuit of truth has always been highly prized in every culture, whether Christian or non-Christian. The pursuit of truth is the capstone of all pursuits. How many today in our culture could care less about that? In fact, if I were to say that in public, we need to pursue truth, it would maybe make some people get sick to their stomach. And yet it is the most important thing for us to grasp. When the pursuit of truth as a whole is extinguished, like I said, you will be left with one of two extremes in a society, either utter despair or absolute narcissism. And we are on our way. Big time. It's interesting that today we see both depression and narcissism at all-time high levels. Now, I'm not about to argue that every case of depression is a result of adopting postmodern thought. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there's definitely a correlation with its escalation. When we adopt certain principles as true, that are, we say are true to life, it's a depressing outlook. And so there's definitely a correlation. So what are we to do as a church? What's our response? Because we have a worldview that argues... There is definite truth. 
There is definite right or wrong. There is meaning and purpose to life. There is an origin that we come from and a destiny we're going to. All those are not in the postmodern mindset. And so the, the contrasts are very drastic. And they're very difficult. This conference tomorrow, don't expect it to be easy. Intentionally, it's not going to be. I have a hard, firm conviction that the church has for too long been like children playing. And now all this stuff has blossomed and we're still playing games. It saddens me when church is dumbed down to such simplicity. When historically, the church has always been one of the forerunners in confronting issues. And I have a desire to take you there. So I hope you're on board. So we're commanded to engage in these kind of issues. We are commanded to engage in these kind of issues. 1 Peter 3.15, first scripture reference up there says this. Well, just turn there with me. I want you to read it. This is one of my favorite verses, especially given the context of this verse. Peter's writing to Christians who've been exiled and are suffering If there is ever a time to have hope, it's in those moments when you've been uprooted from your home, you're living as a sojourner, running for your life. And he says in 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. You see, church, the Lord allows suffering, trials, confusion sometimes to enter into our life. Why? So that an onlooking world can look at your life and say, how is it that you still have hope? Because if that came upon me, I'd be hopeless. God places us strategically in situations like that so that an onlooking world can ask you to give a defense for the hope that's in you. And you need to be able to do it. The churches as a whole need to be equipping us to do that. So I love the context of that verse. It's not just a heady argument type command. Hey, give a defense for the hope. No. This is suffering. This is real life that they're experiencing. And it's in that context that we're able to give a hope, a reason for the hope that's in us. Philippians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, verses 5 through 7. I love this this passage. In fact, um, I preached on it several times. Many of you got to hear it several times as I was filling pulpits before we started this church. One of our favorite verses, I think, has been drastically misunderstood, unfortunately, but in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, Paul's thanking the Philippian church for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 6, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. If you remember, the, the you there is not singular in the Greek, it's plural. So Paul's not talking to you as an individual that God has started some work in you and he'll complete it. What he has in mind is the church as a whole. God has started a work in the church, y'all. And He's going to bring that work to completion. What's the work? Well, verse 7 answers it. 
It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Here's the work. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's the work that God began in the church that we are to be partners in. And Paul was thankful that the Philippian church had partnered with him in the work of defending and confirming the gospel. It's apologetics. That's worldview issues. We're to be a part of it. Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Again, a very well known passage that you guys love. Jesus says this in verse 13, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And by the way, that's how the, the world views the church today. You're no good for anything. Have we lost our saltiness, church? Verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine where? Before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Two things that Jesus mentioned specifically, salt and light. Salt was a preservative and beneficial for numerous things. It was meant to be a, a force of good in the culture. That's the metaphor. A preservative. This is Jesus has an outlook of the church here that's in the world as a force of good. You are the salt of the earth, He said. Retain your saltiness. Be in the world as a force for good. Your light, He says. You are the light of the world. Now we can theologically say, well, Jesus is the light. Yes, He is. But Jesus is in the church as the light. We are His body. And it is through the church Jesus is manifested to the world. So Jesus can theologically say, we are the light. Why? Because He's in the church. We are the light and we are strategically placed, He says. We are set on a hill. We're set on a stand. And those two things cannot be hidden. They're meant for the world to see. So we are commanded, there's a biblical imperative to be engaged in this kind of work as a church. Here's what Francis Schaeffer said. You guys have heard of Francis Schaeffer. I love Francis Schaeffer's stuff. This is out of his book, The God Who Is There. He says, when we understand our calling, it is not only true, but beautiful. And it should be exciting. It is hard to understand how an orthodox, evangelical, Bible-believing Christian can fail to be excited. The answers in the realm of the intellect should make us overwhelmingly excited. But more than this, we are returned to personal relationship with the God who is there. If we are unexcited Christians, we should go back and see what's wrong. It's a good examination. If this does not interest us, if, if being the church in the world and engaged in this kind of work is not exciting, let's go see what's wrong. Winston Churchill sarcastically noted that men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off 
as if nothing happened. I love that quote. And unfortunately, I think that can be applied to both the world and the church today. The Christian existential philosopher Soren Kierkegaard warned the church of failing to invest their life upon that which lasts. A, a theme that is dear to me. I, I get burdened by the, the silliness that we approach life with and the shallowness in which we live. He warned saying this, to love God in truth, come what may, with the consequence that in this life you will suffer under the hands of men. Therefore, do not deceive yourself. Of all deceivers, fear yourself most. Good advice. So we are commanded to be a part of this, and we, we can deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, that's for someone else. No, it's for you. It's for me. It's for the church. All of us have a role. You may not be the voice. You may not be the scholar. But you've got a role in the work. Somehow, somewhere. We are to be the light of the world. All of us. Second imperative. Well, not yet. Sorry. So here, I put this in as, as encouragements. How, if we're commanded to be a part of this work, one, stay alert. Because there will be many things that will detract you from this work. Hebrews 12.1, 1 Peter 5. Let me read them to you. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Secondly, redeem your time. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.15, saying, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Literally what Paul is telling you and me is to evaluate your life, your daily habits. Are you making the best use of your time? In light of God's imperative for me to be a part of this work, how do I actually walk and live? The third one there, serve the Lord. Here's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He's giving young Timothy the metaphor to help Timothy understand the devotedness, the single-mindedness needed in serving Christ. When Christ saves a soul, He ransoms you and He makes you His. And He says, seek first the kingdom and my righteousness. I've pulled you out of the world for a reason. It's not to get entangled in it again. Moving on to the second biblical imperative. The church needs wise individuals in it. Proverbs 4.7 says this, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. First Chronicles 12.32 I love this verse. In fact, this is the theme verse for our, our conference. And I'll, I'll tell you what the context of it is. Verse 32 says that David surrounded himself with sons of Issachar who were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. But the context is really what makes this verse make sense. David had been anointed king and yet Saul was still reigning. 
So David had to flee to Hebron in exile. It was a very tumultuous, unsure time in Israel's history. And so people who recognized David as king were coming to him, and David surrounded himself with certain people, some of whom were these sons of Issachar. You see the the correlation? In uncertain times, where you don't know what's going on, you don't know the best course of action, what do you need? You need wise people. And you need to surround yourself with men who have insight in how to lead. In truth. That's what I want this church to be. Sons of Issachar. Ezra 8 is the same example. Israel had just come back out of exile. They're trying to organize the nation, organize the temple, everything. And Ezra seeks out men who had discretion and insight to surround himself with. But I want you to turn with me to King Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles. Again, you're familiar with this. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. David has passed. Solomon has been made king. It says, In that night, verse 7 of chapter 1, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, now be fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? David's one request, give me wisdom and knowledge on how to lead. God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart and you've not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not asked even for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I've made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, Solomon. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you. I was reading last night the beautiful contrast, the faithfulness of the Lord. I was reading in Genesis when Abraham and Lot get to a place where they're so large that Abraham says to Lot, we've got to divide. The land can't sustain both of us. So Abraham actually let, lets Lot choose first, right? He says, Lot, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You choose. And the Scripture says Lot looked up and saw that the valley, the Jordan Valley there was fertile. It had plenty of water. So he chose to go there. And you get this sense when you're reading it like, dang it, you know? I was hoping he wouldn't choose that. Not Abraham. He let him have it. Okay, that's a good land. You take it, Lot. I'll go this way. The very next thing that's said in the text, after Lot goes, God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to look in every direction. As far as you can see, it's all yours. Abraham had wisdom. He didn't seek for riches. He didn't seek for the best. He gave preference to others. And what did God do? He gave him it anyway, just like Solomon. You know what I pray? You pray for me. Not that we're some mega church. Not that we're exploding by the... I hope you're praying that I have wisdom. That's what we need in today's times. That's what we need. That's what I need. What kind of wisdom and knowledge is needed? Well, it's been said that the world seeks answers to the immediate questions of life with no recourse to answers to ultimate questions. I think that's true. When you reject truth, 
All the ultimate questions of where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? You don't have an answer for. You're like Pilate. What is truth? And you're left with blanks. So why do they not have answers to those questions? Because they lack wisdom. Biblical wisdom. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? I'm not talking about professional kind of knowledge. We have lots of professionals who are very knowledgeable people according to things of the world. Wisdom is wholly different. Job, I'm not going to read all those passages, but I'd encourage you to go read it. Job metaphorically gives a beautiful description. In verse 28, he he ends with saying, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The world indeed has grown leaps and bounds in knowledge. And by the way, Scripture prophesied that this would happen. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says that the end times will be characterized by an incredible increase of knowledge and learning. And yet we can conclude with Paul in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy rather, that although men are always learning, they're never able to come to a knowledge of truth. Just consider this point. How much has the world grown in knowledge? And yet how confused are we still? We're more confused than ever, though our knowledge has become exponential. So it's not simply, like I said, professional type knowledge that we need. We need biblical wisdom. Here's what uh, an old scholar, as you know I like, F.W. Farrar, in his book called Silence and the Voices of God, here's what he said, Our enemies charge us with timidity and dogmatism. In other words, holding to a truth uncritically. We don't criticize our own belief. He says, let us answer, let us in answer, I'm sorry, as children of the light, advance fearlessly into the battle. As far as the farthest is pressed into the sciences, we would press. As high as the highest have soared in philosophy, we will soar. As deep as the deepest have dug in search for truth, we too would dig. We are false heirs of the martyrs if we shrink back from pain false children and false successors of the fathers and schoolmen and the reformers if we scowl on intellect or sneer at knowledge. False to every tradition of our faith and of our history, of our vocation and of our name. If being partakers of the divine nature and having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust, if we do not also give all diligence to add to our faith virtue and to our virtue knowledge. But Farrar does not have just worldly kind of knowledge in mind. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have good understanding. You see, what he's saying is this, pursue the sciences, Pursue your professional careers. Pursue those things because they're true to reality. But baptize all of it with the fear of God because that's what makes it make sense. Why do I bring this moral aspect of the fear of the Lord up? Well, because the world needs it. I've got a lot of quotes coming up here from atheists. But the world needs this moral aspect of knowledge. They need to consider it. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1-4, Paul talks about the Gospel being veiled to those who are perishing. And he says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9-12, Paul's talking about the end times, the Antichrist coming, and how people refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. And consequently, because they refuse to love truth, God gives them over to be deceived. That's His prerogative. See, there's a moral component to our knowledge. It's not amoral. It's not an amoral thing. There's a moral component to our knowledge. When we come in and stumble over the truth, like Churchill said, we are now accountable to it. And God will make it so. We will answer for what we do with it. And the fear of God causes us to rightly understand. If you don't believe me that there's a moral aspect to the rejection of the truth by some of these people, let me read these quotes to you. Aldous Huxley, you've heard of Aldous Huxley. Wrote The Brave New World. Had to read it in school. He was an atheist. He also wrote a book called The Island, which was a follow-up, which is a very interesting thing. I'm not going to get into it, but he basically rejects the Christian worldview and then in The Island creates his own. But here's what he said. I took it for granted that there is no meaning. This was partly due to the fact that I shared the common belief that the scientific picture of an abstraction from reality was a true picture of reality as a whole. Partly also to their non intellectual reasons. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. He's honest. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. And because of that assumption, he says, I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. Very candid confession. But what he's pointing out is this. The reason he said the world is meaningless is because he had a will that wanted it to be that way, not because there's actually compelling evidence that it is. You see that? He goes on to say this, in rejecting Christianity and Christians in favor of political and economic and the sexual freedom of behavior that he desired, he says, there was one admirably simple method of confuting these people. He's talking about Christians. Confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. That's his answer to the Christian worldview. The world is meaningless. Why? Because I want to live this way, not your way. That was his justification. Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist philosopher, says this. When some, um, let me preface this, because the quote's kind of coming into the middle of a thought. He pointedly confessed that he rejected Christianity on more grounds than what he considered Christianity's objectionable moral doctrines, its social policies, its political influence. He says the deeper rejection of Christianity was something much deeper than those things, namely the fear of religion itself. He says, I speak from experience. 
being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I want there, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Most strikingly, Friedrich Nietzsche, you've heard of him, very hostile, aggressive atheist, the turn of the century. In his work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he says this, but he, referring to God, had to die. He saw with eyes that saw everything. He saw man's depth and ultimate grounds, all his concealed disgrace and ugliness. His pity knew no shame. He crawled into my dirtiest nooks. This most curious, over-obtrusive one had to die. He always saw me. On such a witness, I wanted to have my revenge or not live myself. The God who saw everything, even man, this God had to die. Man cannot bear that such a witness should live. And he would go on to say, God is dead and we have killed him. Why? Because God knows who we are. There's a moral component to our knowledge. And there's three good examples. So church, in a changing world that will constantly come up with new doctrines, new systems of belief, new reasons why we should not believe the truth, we need to be unwavering for two reasons. First, out of conviction for the truth. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul calls the church the pillar and support of the truth. You see, God, Scripture also says, has entrusted this to us. And Paul warns Timothy, guard it. Keep it pure. Don't compromise it. The church has been entrusted with this treasure. Secondly, we're unwavering out of a love for God who loves the lost. I want you to journey through those three scriptures there with me. 2 Corinthians beginning in chapter 5. See, not only are we to guard the truth, I want to caution you not to stop there. You are to guard the truth. But we can assume a defensive posture only. And we're not to be simply defensive in our faith. See, when Jesus said in the Gospels that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it's not a defensive statement. What He's saying is, the gates of hell won't keep you out. There's nothing they can do to keep you out. It's an offensive statement that Jesus said. The gates of hell won't prevail against you. You will overrun the camp. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us. Now, highlight that. Entrusting to us, what? The message of reconciliation. Now, here's the plea. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see that? God's entrusted you with this, and He's making His appeal to the world through you. 
out of love for them. Be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, We are always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. See, we don't just hold on to the richness of the Gospel for ourselves. We're giving it away. We have nothing, yet we're making many rich. Here, take the Gospel without cost. And then last in chapter 8, begin in verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. That was the grace of God toward us when we were lost. Are we to be a church then that sits here and receives the riches of Christ and doesn't keep passing it out? See? Out of a love for the lost. Again, Francis Schaeffer in his book, The God Who Is There, he says this kind of apologetic communication. Apologetic, he's not talking about being sorry. He's talking about defending the faith. It's not cheap. To understand and speak to sincere and yet utterly confused 20th century people is costly. It is tiring. It will open you up to temptations and pressures. Genuine love in the last analysis means a willingness to be entirely exposed to the person with whom we're talking. You know what Francis Schaeffer did? He set up his network in Switzerland and he invited lost people to come and live with him. And he'd answer their questions. And he led many, many to faith. Brilliant man. I want to end with this. Hetty Green, the picture of her there. This is in the 1900s, early 1900s. was the world's richest woman and was also the world's greatest miser. She's given that title in Guinness Book of World Records. She died in 1916. And when she died, her estate was valued at $100 million in 1916. That's $2.4 billion today. A lot of money. It's been retold that Green was so miserly that she ate cold oatmeal because it was too expensive to heat the water to warm it. Her son had broken his legs severely, but because she delayed so long in trying to find a free clinic... His leg had to be amputated. In fact, she herself had an attack of apoplexy, which ended up hastening her death because she was arguing over the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. Pretty miserly woman. Had so much and gave so little. And yet I fear that the church, if we continue to ignore this aspect of giving, the richness of the Gospel, it might be our picture up there and not hers. We are told to defend the faith. And we are told to give it away. I don't want to end on a down note though. We hope and our prayer is that God fills us with a spirit of grace and of truth. Just as was in Jesus in John chapter 1. We want truth, and we're not going to apologize for our convictions. 
And the reason we're not going to apologize is not because we're just dogmatic. It's because if we begin to apologize for our truth, the world won't have it. It's what they need. And it's been given to the church to guard and give away. So I pray tomorrow, this was more of a sermon, tomorrow's going to be more informative. I won't preach tomorrow. But I hope you come. Um, I have, again, a real desire. As Bo said it earlier today, he said, tomorrow plays much more into my comfort zone. And uh, I'm excited about it, but I, I want this to be a rich time for us as a church to understand the people that we're ministering to identify the issues we're going to have to contend with. Not out of a bitterness toward them, but understanding, hey, this is where they're at and I'm going to be able to address it. So, let's pray. I'll invite the worship team back up here. Father, I just want to stop and pause and thank You and worship You for Your patience and Your grace toward us. God, You're so patient. You're so kind and gentle in how You deal with with us, Lord. There are times You discipline us. And it's because You love us, Lord, when we are falling short in our mission as a church or as an individual, it's for our good. God, I pray that You encourage Waypoint to be passionate about engaging the lost because You've given us this treasure of truth. You've entrusted it to the church to guard and to give away. And Father, I just think about, I've thought about this all week, how You could have sat on Your throne in heaven and pronounced right judgments against mankind for all of our folly, for all of our waywardness, for all of our wrong philosophizing. But what You did instead is You came, You spoke truth to us, exposed the error, and You loved us. And You continue to call, You continue to draw, You continue to save. Give us that balance as a church where we're uncompromising in our conviction. But as John Piper said in speaking about hell, that we hold to that doctrine with tears. Because it's true. And yet we plead with those who are going there. It breaks our heart that it's true. Father, we love You. We sing this last song that You are an everlasting God. We thank You so much that You do not change. You do not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a firm foundation because You're an everlasting God. We have security. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.